The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. After traveling through all that traffic on uh, the Beltway and I-10, I know everybody needs to get back in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. For you, use First John 1, 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you this evening in prayer. We thank you that you provide for us things that we need, that you have sufficiently provided everything that we need for salvation, everything we need for the spiritual life, that you guide and direct our lives with a purpose, and that even though things may appear to be chaotic and unstable at times, we know that you are ultimately in control. Father, we pray that we can understand these principles, learn to relax and to trust you, and to watch the unfolding of your plan. Now, Father, as we study, continue our study in the life of Joseph, we pray that you'd help us to see the truths that are displayed in his life and how these doctrines are applicable to our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. Now, there was a break in there in the action between Genesis chapter 37 and 39. We had the uh, interlude in the focus on Judah and his incest with his daughter-in-law Tamar. And that provides sort of a backdrop for what happens in Genesis chapter 39 because what the Holy Spirit is emphasizing to us is the contrast between the paganism that has influenced all of the brothers, the other uh, ten brothers, not Benjamin, he's too young, but the other ten brothers who are the sons of Jacob, who are the progenitors of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now back in chapter 37, we see the background to this, a familiar story of Joseph in the coat of many colors. Joseph was favored by his father and His father used him because he could trust Joseph, and he wasn't sure he could trust the other brothers. And so Jacob used Joseph to supervise the other brothers. And this obviously began to show favoritism from his father, and he loved Joseph above all of the other brothers. And, of course, that had its consequence of producing resentment and anger in those brothers to the degree that they hated Joseph so much that they couldn't even talk to him. The situation worsened when Jacob gave Joseph a coat, a literally a tunic, that had uh, special uh, embroidery on it, special significance on it, that would indicate his favored status. And this emphasized that Jacob either had or was considering giving the inheritance, making J- Joseph the youngest the heir. In the ancient world, we have a a title known as a firstborn son. In our thinking, firstborn son is first in chronological order. But it really emphasizes that aspect of the preeminent son. And the father could designate someone other than the eldest to be the primary heir and recipient of his, uh, his possessions and his fortune. And so Jacob was indicating that with Joseph. And this follows a principle that we've seen with Abraham and Isaac already of the the oldest would serve the younger. This was a principle that God was using to uh, emphasize who the favored line was going through. So the ten were angry with him 
and plotted against him to kill him. We have an emphasis on two brothers in particular. There's Reuben, who uh, convinces them not to kill him, but just to put him in a cistern somewhere to let him be killed by wild animals or starved to death. So he has a secret plan of saving Joseph. So he seems to be trying to do the right thing. And then Judah is the other brother that's emphasized. Judah decides, well, why don't we just sell him as a slave and get some money out of him? Why kill him and lose all that uh, all that money? So those two individuals are uh, brought into focus in chapter 37. And then chapter 38 focused on Judah and his uh, the fact that he's left his brother, goes and lives uh, away from uh, the family and has all of his family and relations with the Canaanites. And in contrast, we're going to have Joseph, whose focus is on the Lord, and rather than being immoral, sexually immoral, as uh, Judah was, uh, Joseph is going to be uh, moral and faithful and demonstrate integrity. Now, one of the things that's going on in Joseph's life that I want to emphasize as we think in terms of of an applicational grid for these things is that God is training Joseph to be a leader, but not just any leader. God's plan is for Joseph to be the number two leader in the Egyptian empire. And at this time in the world, Egypt is fabulously wealthy. The Pharaoh is incredibly powerful. He is viewed as the incarnation of God himself. So that to be the number two man to Pharaoh is a, a position of wealth and power and prestige that none of us can even fathom. I don't think we're, we have anybody in this world perhaps today that has the kind of power that an Egyptian Pharaoh had or had the kind of potential power that Joseph would have. And so God has to prepare him for this because we all know that, that uh, power uh, corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so God had to train and prepare uh, Joseph in a special way for this kind of leadership because it would be a a position that would be open to incredible abuse, and Joseph could not do that. He could not turn his position into a position of uh, just taking care of his own needs and his uh, feathering his own nest, as it were. So God had to take him through a number of uh, training sessions in order to prepare him for that leadership. Now, one of the things you have to realize as a leader is that it's not a popularity contest. It's not about polls. It's not about what people think about what you do. It's about doing the right thing. And to do the right thing, you have to know the right thing. And to know the right thing, there has to be something built into the soul of the individual that produces character. And if you look at the Scriptures... That's what God is focusing on in believers. And we've seen that in our study on Thursday night in Hebrews, that when the Scripture talks about fruit, and that's mostly in the New Testament, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that's produced in John chapter 15, that the emphasis in this concept of fruit in the Bible is not actions, it's not Christian service, it's not evangelism, it's character. It is changed character. It is not recognizing that, well, there's grace and so I can keep on sinning. It is a recognition that, no, I'm supposed to apply doctrine and there needs to be a transformational process that takes place. It's not legalism. Legalism comes along and tries to change things externally and it emphasizes the cleaning up of sin to the exclusion of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the focus that we see in the Bible is to become so occupied with God in the Old Testament, with Christ in the New Testament, the church age, to become so occupied with Christ that that which is sinful becomes uh, disdained and irrelevant. It's viewed as a distraction. It is not that our focus is on let's go out and try to clean up all the sin in our life, but let's get so focused on who Christ is and our relationship with Him that that controls the decision-making and the priorities in our own life. And so Joseph has to go through this uh, training process. When he gets to that point at the, end of the, at the end of the tunnel, when he's about 35 or 36 years old, 
and they've finished their the Egyptians have finished their seven years of of uh, prosperity and go into those seven years of famine. The pressure on him because he's going to be the one who holds the key to all the storage bins of food, and he's going to be dealing with uh, tens of thousands of people who are starving and hungry, and they would you can imagine the pressure that someone would be under uh, being offered everything from money to sex to whatever to give them more food. And, and the person who is in charge of that key has to be a man of tremendous integrity, a man who is above reproach to handle the responsibilities of leadership. So he had to learn that it wasn't a popularity contest, that he would have to rule on the base and lead on the basis of absolutes. It's not about being uh, well-liked or favored, but about doing what is right based on a clear set of standards. And so he first had to learn the lesson of humility. Humility is key to being a good leader. I remember hearing that when I was a student in college going through ROTC programs, that to be a good leader, you first have to be a good follower. And you have to understand that that, that is a biblical principle. It's laid out in... Proverbs 15:33 The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. We'll come back and see how important this concept of the fear of the Lord is for uh, Joseph because that's we see it demonstrated in his life in this chapter that his priority is on the Lord. The fear of the Lord is is more than respect for God. It's more than awe. It is it is not fear in the sense of being terrorized but it is fear in the sense of an awesome dread that the last thing in the world we want to face is the justice of God and so that influences our decision making but the second line in this proverb is what I want to focus on before honor is humility in other words before you can be in a position of honor, a place of prestige, a place of leadership, a place of responsibility, first there has to be the lesson of humility. Authority orientation must precede authority position. You have to learn to be oriented to authority. And if you're not oriented to authority, then the risk is that you will abuse the power that you have and that you will become a tyrant rather than a leader. And this often happens. Uh, I see this a lot of times when young people get married. I think the, tw- the period of their 20s in a young, young couple's life is a tough time because the man is beginning to learn what it means to be a leader and not a tyrant. And even though he is the head of the home, that headship doesn't mean that he gets to do things the way he wants to, but he is under the authority of God so that he has to lead as someone who is under the authority of Jesus Christ. And so in order to, for a man to be a good, biblically-based husband, he has to be submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ. And that becomes very difficult, and that's a testing ground for young men in their 20s. And you see the flip side of that on the other side of the coin with wives is they have to learn to be properly oriented to the authority of their husbands. And there's this correlation between authority orientation and leadership. And everybody who is in a position of authority is also in a position of subordination to someone else that's in authority. And in order to carry that out, there has to be humility, which is a proper understanding of who we are, what our, what our abilities are, what our limitations are. So Joseph must uh, recognize his own position in God's plan, that God's chosen him for a special mission, but this is not something that he needs to brag about or lord over others. See, this was a lesson he was didn't learn well in the previous chapter when he had his dreams about the uh, the stars and his as his brothers, and that uh, the sun was his father and the moon was his mother, and they were all bowing down to him. He went out to brag about this. Look, eventually you all are going to bow down and worship me. Well, that's true, but he didn't need to tell everybody about that. He had to learn some uh, humility, and so God is taking him through this test where he is taken from being in a position of prestige 
and a position uh, of honor as the heir of the family. And now all of a sudden he's been moved completely away from everything that's familiar to him. And he is nothing more than a common slave. And he has nothing to rely on other than God himself. So, we come to the basic backdrop doctrine to this whole study, and that's the doctrine of divine providence. And let me just remind you in four points what that's all about. First of all, the doctrine of divine providence is that God is sovereign and He rules the universe and is directing history according to His plan. He is the ultimate authority as the Creator over everything that happens in human history. He guides and directs human history toward his planned end. Second thing we learn is that God oversees the outworking of his plan and he provides protection for his people. So even though there is instability in the world because of evil, because of Satan, because of sin natures, because you have six and a half billion people running around who all want to be God, that's going to create a lot of problems. And everybody's running around in a different direction exercising their free will in different directions, yet God nevertheless is in control, and in his omnipotence he oversees the progress in human history and brings about that which is for his glory, which is the third point. Despite human failures and flaws, despite all the chaos of sin, God works all things together for good. He is able to work all these details together. It just blows our mind to try to contemplate the almost infinite number of possibilities and details and people, yet God is in control. Not like a puppet master uh, running the show that way, but he is able to work things in such a way that without violating human volition, human responsibility, he brings about that which is for his glory. And we've seen this in Romans 8.28, and we know that, and it should be translated, that he works all things together for good, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. He is the one, God the Father is the one, working all things together for good. Not that all things are good, but that He is able to work them together to fulfill His ultimate plan and to glorify Himself in the angelic conflict. Now, throughout this section, especially in chapter 39, we see the action of God behind the scenes. Look at these verses. 39 verse 2, And the Lord was with Joseph. 39.3, As a result of the way he made Joseph successful, his master Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him. It was evident to a pagan unbeliever that the Lord was blessing Joseph. And so he promoted him. In verse 4 we read, And Joseph found grace in his sight. See, God is working behind the scenes. In verse 5, The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Now, what does that remind you of? What's a key word in that phrase? The Lord blessed the Gentile, the Egyptian. What does that remind you of? Three things. Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. And Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham, and God is blessing all of, going to bless all of Egypt and all of the Mediterranean world through Joseph. And this is the beginning of that outwork. He's blessing Potiphar and his household through Joseph. It's an outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. And then after he gets uh, framed by Potiphar's wife and falsely accused of uh, raping her, he gets thrown in jail. And what do we find when he gets thrown in jail? See, we always get thrown these curves in life. Things come out completely different from the way we hoped for, the way we intended, and we go from uh, the pit to the prison, which is what happens with Joseph. And the Lord was with Joseph, even in prison. The Lord is still guiding and directing. He's still in control. Joseph's thinking things are out of control. What am I doing here? And yet the Lord is with him and extended kindness to him and gave him favor. The emphasis there is on grace. Those words kindness and favor emphasize God's grace toward 
Joseph. And then in verse 23, And the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. This is the -the behind-the-scenes work of God in the life of a believer to bring about that which uh, is intended in the plan of God. So the doctrine of the providence of God runs behind all of these chapters, everything in the story of Joseph. Now, why is all this taking place? Why is, why is the Holy Spirit having Moses record these events in chapter 39? Because it's preparing the... Who's, who's listening to this? Moses is writing it to the Jews. They've just been brought out of Egypt as slaves, and they're learning why they were slaves in Egypt, and they're learning how... Uh, in slavery they ought to perform, and that just as God was with Joseph, God was with them during those 400 years of slavery. God's providential care uh, blessed them incredibly so that they expanded to a tremendous nation of about 2.5 or 3, billion, uh, 3 million people during this time to come out of the land. What's interesting is that at that time, you had two and a half to three million Jews. And what we base that on is that when they take the first census in numbers after they leave Sinai, there's about 680,000 men above the age of 20. And so if there's 680,000 men above the age of 20 and you have approximately the same number of women above the age of 20, that gives you about 1.3 million. And if each of them, each couple has one and only one kid, then you're up to 2 million. If they had two, then you're up to about 2.6 million. So that's a, that's a huge number. Well, recently I was doing a lot of research on what was, what's happened in the history of Israel since uh, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and going through all the history and the rest and the return of Jews to the land in the 19th century. And in 1850, there were 3 million Jews who lived in Eastern Europe and Russia, and that was 75% of all Jews in the world. They had been reduced down to just about 4 million by the middle of the 19th century. So we're, we're, only during their heyday were they a larger, much larger group of people, but because of their disobedience to God, as he promised in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, that God would reduce them to a small number. But see, the promise to Abraham was that he would bless them and make them numerous. And this is how it begins. They just had this population explosion in 400 years. They go from about 75 who went down to Egypt with Jacob at the end of Genesis. And 400 years later, they're up to almost 3 million. So they had quite a population explosion as it was taken care of by who? By the providence of God. So this is the lesson that that pervades this section, and it was particularly directed to the Jews at that time. So as we go through the life of Joseph, again and again we're going to see the hidden hand of God guiding and directing them. And that is the primary way that God works in our life today. When we talk about the whole doctrine of divine guidance, what happens today is the same thing. God is not speaking today. Revelation has ceased. He's not giving you uh, a rosy glow. He's not giving you liver quiver. He's not doing any of these other things. He is speaking to you only through His Word. And God the Holy Spirit makes that clear to you, but He isn't speaking to you apart from that. That's when we get into, into mysticism. Now let's see how God guides and directs Joseph in Egypt. We read in verse 1, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down down there. Now just one note, they're called the Ishmaelites in one passage, back, and, and the name changes back and forth in chapter 37. They're referred to as Midianite traders in verse 28, even in the same verse. They're called Ishmaelites. And then in verse 36, they're called Midianites again because those who had descended from Ishmael intermarried with the sons 
of the descendants of Abraham through his second wife, Keturah, and the Midianites came from them, and so there's an intermarriage. So both terms applied to, uh, to these traders that were also engaged in the slave trade. We also learned that the slave trade goes back uh, pretty far in ancient history. So Joseph is taken down is taken down to Egypt, and we learn about his new employer, a man named Potiphar. And we're told three things about him, that he's an Egyptian, he's an officer of Pharaoh, and he is a captain of the guard. Now, why does the Holy Spirit emphasize three, these three things? Well, his name, Potiphar, is an Egyptian name, and you see how it's broken down into... Uh, a basic uh, uh, linguistic pattern that means uh, potty X and X is the, the, you have the P and then the second syllable is uh, DI, uh, which comes over in transliteration is TI, and then you have the last syllable X, and that last syllable uh, stands for a deity. And so it refers to uh, the, the first part of that refers to belonging to or dedicated to a god, and in this case it was the sun god. So he is a uh, he's typical Egyptian, pagan, worshiping the sun god, and then he serves the pharaoh. He's called the chief of the guard. And this indicates that Potiphar was high up in the military chain of command. He would uh, be in charge of all of the internal security around the Pharaoh. So he was responsible for protecting the Pharaoh. He was responsible for security over anyone who came, anyone who stayed in the presence of Pharaoh. He would have his, Potiphar would have his, uh, uh, have free access to everything in any of the palaces, any of the homes where the Pharaoh stood. And so, Joseph, as his slave, is not just in the sl- a slave of anybody in any family in Egypt. You know, Joseph just, just doesn't go down here and get put on the slave auction and end up in, uh, you know, some merchants uh, as a slave in some merchant. You see the hand of God. He's going to put him with a particular individual and one who has. Uh, a tremendous knowledge of the inner workings of the highest levels of government so that as Joseph worked for Potiphar, he would come to know the inner workings of the upper echelons of power and aristocracy in Egypt. He would be exposed to all kinds of important officials and individuals who would have uh, business with Potiphar, and he would know who these people were. He would learn how to behave as an Egyptian, being in an, an aristocratic uh, Egyptian home. He would learn all about their culture. He would learn to speak Egyptian as the aristocracy spoke Egyptian. So if he had gone to some uh, lower middle class home, he would pick up a lower middle class language and, and slang and diction, and he wouldn't get to know any, any, anything about the palace. He would not know how to live and operate within the environment of the upper echelons of power. But see, God places him in a, in a particular home so that he goes to school for the next 10 years, and he's exposed to key people and key places. He knows his way around. He learns the culture. He learns how to speak uh, well as an Egyptian so that he is able to pass later on as an Egyptian. So he's introduced to the culture, the organization, and the protocols uh, in the upper echelons of Egyptian society and government. Joseph is now going to learn not to focus on the problems in life, but to focus on God. God takes everything away from him. We rely so much on the details of life to give us those moments of comfort and happiness. Uh, and we have friends around us. We have family around us. We have our homes that we have fixed up just the way we like them so that everything is comfortable. We have our jobs. Uh, we like stability. People don't like change. 
and we base our happiness and stability and peace of mind and tranquility on having everything around us just the way we like it. And all of a sudden, all of that is ripped away from Joseph, and there's nothing there. there his family, his friends, the environment back home, the, his culture, his language, everything that provides that uh, zone of comfort for us is removed from Joseph. So he has to learn to focus on the grace of God to provide everything. And relying on the grace of God is crucial for developing humility to have grace orientation. We have to learn that it's, it's, it's not about who we are. It's not about us. It's not about our problems, our difficulties, and our heartaches. It's about the plan of God. And so it would be very easy for Joseph to turn his focus inward and start focusing on how his brothers had betrayed him, how he's been uh, sold as a slave, how they've maltreated him, and to give in to a sin nature that focuses on hatred and anger and resentment and bitterness and revenge and trying to figure out some way to escape and to get back home. But he understands that He's already beginning to understand what he says at the end of the book, that they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So he is orienting his thinking to the plan of God, and that is foundational to being a good leader. So we see the beginning of his spiritual growth here with grace orientation. He recognizes that all that we have is from God. Job comes to understand this in Job 2, verse 10. This is after the second level of testing that he went through. In the first level, the uh, Satan was given permission by God to, to test Job. Remember the scene in heaven where the sons of God, both the fallen angels and the holy angels come before God, and Satan comes up, and God points out to Satan, have you, have you paid attention to my servant Job? I don't know if you've thought about that, but if you had a friend who called on Satan and said, have you paid attention to this person over here? What would you think about that person as a friend? Well, here's God saying, well, I just want to make sure you've noticed Job over here. Just pay attention to him. See, Job was the most mature believer in his generation and the wealthiest man. He was, he was Bill Gates and spiritually mature, all wrapped up in, in one package. And in 20 minutes' time, he hears that he has lost everything. He, all of his, uh, the, the uh, Chaldeans and Sabaeans attack, and they wipe out all of his herds. There's a tornado that comes through and wipes out the house where all of his children are having a party, and they're all killed. He loses all of his wealth. Uh, everything is taken away, and he hears about it just boom, 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 one right after the other as one messenger comes, and while he's still delivering the bad news, the next messenger comes, and while he's delivering the bad news, the next messenger comes. And when it's all over with, he says he bowed down and worshiped God. What a tremendous attitude, recognizing that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He understands that principle that if we're going to accept what God gives us, we have to accept the same, with the same attitude of graciousness and gratitude when the Lord takes away. That is a mark of a mature believer. And then, again, there's a, another convocation in heaven of all the uh, angels, and they come before God. And again, God says to Satan, well, have you paid attention to Job lately? And, and Satan says, well, you still have a, haven't let me touch him. And if I start... Uh, taking away his health, then he will finally curse you. The only reason he worships you is because you've been so good to him. That's the, uh, one of the major issues in the book of Job. And so when that happens, his wife comes out. And remember, all this happened to her too. Job's wife is sort of the un, uh, uh, unintended consequence, you might say, in the book of Job. Nobody ever thinks about her, but she lost all of her children too. She lost her home. She lost all her financial security. Her 401k plan just, you know, got totally destroyed. Everything was gone. She went through everything that Job did, but we see that contrast. Job is not going to curse God, and she is already bitter and angry. Her whole focus was on the details of life, and she comes to him and says, Why don't you just curse God and die? And this is just such a great statement. He said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Notice how tactful he is. He didn't call her a foolish woman. He said, you're speaking like a foolish woman. Shall we indeed accept good from God 
and shall we not accept adversity? Now that is a tough principle to learn because we're all happy to accept the blessing from God, but we don't want to accept adversity with the same graciousness and joy. And that's why we develop these theologies called prosperity theology because you know, that's the superficial theology that the good comes from God and the bad doesn't. But Job points it out. I don't know how people can go to some of these churches and still keep Job in their Bible. Shall we indeed accept good from God, he says, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And Joseph is learning the same lesson, that God has provided so much for him, and he's been trained by his father. His father's training is clear in this passage. He has obviously learned discipline and responsibility from his parents. He's been taught about the Abrahamic covenant. He's been taught about how that Abrahamic covenant was restated with his grandfather Isaac and how it was reconfirmed to his father Jacob. He's heard the stories about what happened at Bethel and what happened at Peniel, and he knows that God has a special blessing for him, and now all of a sudden he is in this place where he is a slave in Egypt. And he knows, therefore, that God must have a plan for him. So he's showing orientation to the plan of God, which is all part of developing grace orientation. So he has to learn that God may give one day and take away another, and our response has to be the same. And that's where spiritual maturity takes place. He We also learn that we have to rely on God who promises to provide all that we need. Paul recognized this in Philippians 4, 12 and 13. And there he says, I know how to be abased. That means I know how to do without without having two pennies to rub together. And I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned to be both full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And see, everybody memorizes Philippians 4.13 as, and takes it out of context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I remember learning that, singing that in Sunday school when I was a little boy. They had a great little chorus, one of the first memory verses I learned. I can do all, I'm not going to sing it for you, don't worry. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but the all things in the context comes out of verse 12. The all things is I can handle any situation, whether it is having an abundance or not having anything. I can handle any and every situation because I have a sufficient Savior who can get me through any set of circumstances. And as long as I'm focused on Him, I'm going to have stability in an unstable world. And then Philippians 4.19, he says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, what are the riches that we have in Christ Jesus? They are infinite. So the checking account that God's writing the check on to supply your need is a bottomless checking account. You can't exhaust the grace of God. You can't get in a situation in your life that is too great or too much for the grace of God to handle. So... Joseph has to learn this. He has to learn to rely upon the grace of God. And relying upon the grace of God means true humility. Humility puts you in a position where you have to accept someone else taking care of you and giving things to you, and you have to do it with graciousness, humility, and without pride. That's very hard for some people to do. They're very, it's very easy for some people to give. They love to give. They love that if I have an opportunity to give to you financially or to help you financially, I am more than happy to do that. But turn the tables around where you're in a situation where somebody says, here, I want to help you out. I'm going to give you $1,000. Can you accept that just as graciously as giving? If you can't, you haven't learned grace. I remember a story great story that George Meisinger tells about when he was a seminary student. And he came down to Houston, and he was a, uh, uh, did, a, did a summer internship at Baraka Church, a summer pastoral internship. Every student at, seminary has to do, at Dallas Seminary has to do a summer internship. And so he was house-sitting for Pastor Theme 
when they were going to Arizona for vacation. And this was about 1965 or 64, something like that. And so uh, they were all getting in the car, Bob and Betty and Bobby, and they were getting in the car. And just before uh, Bob got in the car, he remembered something and came back to George at the front door and said, you know, you're going to need a little money. And he reached in his pocket, pulled out a wad of bills, and peeled off $300 bills. Now, this was in 1964-65. $300 bills was a lot of money. And George said, I can't accept that. You, you, you need that money for your trip. I can't accept that. Bob looked at him, in the, as only he could do, looked at him right in the eye and said, if you can't learn to accept a gift, you will never understand grace. And that story just really has stuck with me. There's two stories I love to tell about grace. The other one is from Jim Myers. Back in the early 70s, Baraka used to have a library. And they got rid of the library for space. And Jim was down, and Bob told Jim to go into the library and take any books he wanted. And Jim said, what a mistake. I wasn't grace-oriented to take the whole thing. And see, that's the way we are. That's what grace orientation is. A key word is generosity. It's undeserved, unmerited favor. And we have to learn to exploit the grace of God, not to abuse it, but to exploit it. Because God says He will give us everything. So that's why Joseph is in that position where he's having to learn to exploit the grace of God. So he is moving uh, through that basic growth pattern of learning grace orientation. So we have to recognize that we may never comprehend why God allows certain things to happen to us, why we go through certain trials. Job, unless Job wrote the book, Job never knew what was going on in Job 1 and 2. He never understood that. He didn't have a clue how it fit into the angelic conflict other than just general principle. And God never answered his question of why it happened to him. When it was all said and done, and God throws over 70 rhetorical questions at Job, all to emphasize to Job that his finite little mind just can't comprehend all that's involved in testing. He has to do just one thing, just relax and trust in the omnipotence and omniscience of God. So grace orientation means we have to recognize that God's in charge. He's the creator, and we're the creature. And we have to understand that God has also provided everything for us, and we have to learn to live on the basis of what He has given us. And so when things happen that aren't in our plan, when things happen that are uh, difficult, that are painful, that are, that are harsh, and we go through suffering and we lose our house, lose a family member, lose a friend, or we lose a job or we're betrayed or treated harshly, then we can't cave in to self-pity and we can't cave in to bitterness towards man and towards God, but we have to recognize that this is under the providential direction of God and we have to use it in order to uh, develop maturity. So God then moves Joseph to the next stage of character training from grace orientation to doctrinal orientation. And we read, and we know that in doctrinal orientation, you have to learn two things. First of all, you have to learn the truth of God's Word. It is the Word of God that is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the Word of God that God says, My Word will not go forth from me without accomplishing that which I have intended. So we have to learn the truth of God's Word. Jesus says that we are sanctified by truth. Thy Word is truth. It is the truth of God's Word that is what is powerful in our life. And it's not just powerful because it's sort of academic truth, but it has to be applied truth. And that's what we see in the next verse in 39.2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. He is successful. This is the Hebrew word, salach which means to be prosperous or to be successful. So God is, and he had the Midas touch. Everything he did worked. Everything he did prospered. Everything he planned diligently came to proper fruition. 
and this became a testimony to the pagan Potiphar uh, for whom he worked. But what this tells us is that this one word reveals to us Joseph's attitude to God's word because this is a word that is used over in the first psalm. This is a great psalm. You ought to memorize it someday. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who, and then notice the progression here, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. This is a, uh, it's not a progression up, it's a progression down. Uh, This is the progress of sin. Walk in the counsel of the ungodly, then stand in the path of sinners, and then sits in the seat of the sorrowful. Do you see the progression there? You walk, you stand, you sit. In sin, you just take, you just camp out right on carnality. Blessed is a man who walks not in this way, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's a passion to know the Word of God. It's something that you enjoy. It's something that thrills your soul. One of the th- I was talking with a seminary student the other day. This is a young man who grew up in, uh, in doctrinal churches, been exposed to doctrinal pastors all of his life, uh, went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and for the last couple of years or so has had a ministry in a standard sort of Bible, mainstream Bible church. And he told me, he said, I, I, realized, I finally realized about six months ago the difference between a doctrinal church and a Bible church. And I quit. Because I don't want to have anything to do with these people who are in a Bible church because they don't delight in doctrine. They just have a superficial uh, facade of, of wanting things to be biblical. But it only goes skin deep. He said, I, I, I get around a lot and get a chance to fill pulpits in different churches with d- different uh, uh, people who've been listening to tapes, been on doctrine, been listening to different pastors who really get into the Word. And he said, that's the kind of people I want to pastor. I don't want to get involved with these other people because they, they don't have their priorities straight. They're not there primarily and solely to know the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit transform their life, and that's what Psalm one is talking about. Somebody whose delight is in the law of the Lord. It's a passion to know the Word and to apply it. It's not just something that, well, I'm a Christian, so I'll show up on Sunday, and and this is interesting. But but you know, I'm so busy with work, and I'm busy with school, and I'm busy with family that I just don't have time to be in Bible class or to listen to tapes two or three times a week. This is a person who every morning gets up and can't wait to spend time in the Word, listen to a tape, driving to work, plugs in a tape. It's a passion for them. And in his law, he does what? He meditates day and night. Now, that doesn't mean he, he doesn't have time to think about what he's doing at his job. Day and night is a, is a figure of speech. It's a merism where you talk about two opposites and it indicates the entirety. So he's talking about the fact that throughout the day, this is a focus of this person's thinking. It's on the Word of God. The meditation isn't just trying to figure out difficult doctrines. It is chewing on the promises of God's Word, thinking in terms of, of how he faces certain problems and challenges and difficulties in life, thinking, okay, how do I take the Word of God and apply it to this situation? That's what meditation is. It is thoughtful reflection about the principles and the promises of God's Word and how they apply to specific situations in life so that we stop and think at times during the day and say, okay, now I had this situation this morning. How could I have handled that better by applying God's Word? I know that gets too convicting, so we'll go to the next verse. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. That applies to what we've been talking about in fruit bearing in Hebrews on Thursday night. That fruit is something that comes after there's growth and there's progress. Whose leaf also shall not wither and what? Whatever he does he shall prosper. There's our word. That's the Hebrew word salak. It's the same word that we have uh, in Genesis chapter 39. 
Then Proverbs 28.13 uses this same word. It says, He who covers his sins will not prosper. That is, the person who is using grace as a license to sin, the person who is just camouflaging the sin in his life will not prosper. But notice the contrast. So you have to look at the antithetical parallelism in the poetry of the proverb here. On the one hand, you have the person who's covering his sin, he won't prosper, but whoever confesses, that's admission, acknowledge of sin, and forsakes them will have mercy. Notice it's not just a matter, I've run into people like this, say, and you know what's going on in their life. I have counseled people like this where you know that, that they're, they're running their business in an unethical manner. They've got this issue, this sin in their life, and that sin in their life, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And they say, well, I'm taking care of it. i got to keep in sin on short accounts. I'm, I'm confessing all day long. Okay, the goal isn't to confess. The goal is to walk. The goal is to abide in Christ. And that means that you have to forsake the sin. Now, what does that mean? People, legalists have gotten all wrapped around the axle on that. It's the idea of just staying in fellowship. It's not walking the aisle and you know, casting it on the altar or all that religious stuff that people get involved in. It's the idea of just saying, okay, there's got to be a change in my life. That's what repentance means. It just means change. And, you know, some, some areas of our life we can straighten up with doctrine pretty quick, and others we're still going to be dealing with when we're 70 years old. Going, Lord, I thought it was going to get easier, but it's gotten harder. We all have those areas of weakness and areas of strength, but we want to go forward. We want to abide in Christ, walk by the Spirit. So there's the contrast between the person who rationalizes, justifies sins, and says he won't prosper. What do you have to do to prosper? Well, you've got to go back to the application of doctrine in Psalm 1-2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. When you're doing that, when your focus is on the, on the Scripture, there's not room to get involved in a whole lot of other activities. Sooner or later, you get into that conflict. That's why you see this happen in church all the time. People come along for years, and all of a sudden, you don't see them anymore. What happened? Well, they really weren't positive. They had a facade, but they really weren't positive. There really wasn't a, a change taking place in their soul. And finally, the tension between this, the carnality in their life and this, the Word got to be too much, and they bail out. Along with this, as Joseph is learning grace orientation and doctrinal orientation, he's learning how to focus on, on work. He has a work ethic that comes out of the Scripture, and this is laid down for us in the New Testament in Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. This is a fascinating passage. Turn with me there. We're not going to have time to get back into Joseph again, so we'll end with Colossians. But turn with me in the New Testament to Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to connect the dots with what we're doing on on uh, Thursday night as well. Colossians chapter 3. Just go. Let's pick up the context. That's the number one rule in Bible study is context. The command is found in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. See, that's Paul's way of saying what David said in Psalm 1. Meditate day and night. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you, in your hearts. Uh, let, let the Word of Christ dwell richly, dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Key word. We're going to not have time to get there tonight, but we'll come back to wisdom next time. And we saw last time on Thursday night in, in our study in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5.18, Don't be drunk with wine which is in excess, but be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. And what were the results in, in um, Ephesians 5 of the filling of the Spirit? The same thing you have here. It's the same consequences. So I put the two verses together to show that the filling by means of the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ richly dwell in your hearts fit together. The Holy Spirit fills you with the Word of God. That's the dynamic. You don't have one without the other. So this, the Word of Christ dwelling richly in your life, produces wisdom. And that's a skill for living. That's application 
of doctrine. Now skip down. This affects relationships, how you relate to people. It's not just abstract theology. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now I noticed something today that I hadn't noticed before. The word there for wives submitting to your husbands is the word hupotasso. And it means to subordinate yourself to someone in a position of authority. But it's a different word than what you have in verse 20. Verse 20, you have hupakuo. Children, obey your parents. See, the obedience of the wife to the husband is not in the same category as the obedience of the child to the parent. There's a difference. It's a willing subordination of your will to, to the husband's will. It's not a, the same category of hierarchical authority as you have in verse 20. So children, obey your parents in all things. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. And then look at verse 22. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Now that's the word there for obey is hupakuo there. That's a stronger word for obedience, it's a different kind of relationship. You don't have a, a master-slave relationship between a husband and a wife. It's not the same kind of relationship as between parents and children. It's different. So there's a different word for authority orientation used when it relates to wives. Here we have bondservants. Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. That is, those your who are masters in the physical human sphere, not with eye service. And that word, the Greek word for eye service, I thought you'd find this interesting. is a compound word. I don't even know if I can pronounce it all. Ophthalmodulea. And that first part, ophthalmo, what do you think that means? That's like an ophthalmologist. You know, this is an eye. And dulea is doulos for servant. An eye pleaser. You're not just doing it for appearance sake. You're not just have a veneer of obedience and then as soon as the supervisor's gone, you just slough off and, and uh, uh, waste time and waste energy and lower the quality of your work. You, it's, because ultimately as a believer, you're not serving your human boss, whoever that human boss is. That's not who you're working for. If you're a teacher, that's not, you're not working for your principal. If you're in the military, you're not working for your, that sergeant. You're not working for that major. You're not working for that general. If you're uh, working in any other environment, that person who's your supervisor isn't the person you're working for. If you're a believer, you're on that job, but you're really working for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart. And that word for sincerity is the Greek word hoplites, which uh, has the idea of, uh, it's the opposite of duplicity. It emphasizes sincerity in the good sense of that word, faithfulness, loyalty, integrity. It's manifest in helpfulness, going a, a, a step further, doing a better job than you have to do. It's the equivalent of being faithful and, what's that last word? Benevolent. And when you hear the word benevolent, what word ought to also come to your mind? Grace. Grace. It's dealing in grace with your employer. And that's what is happening with Joseph. He's learning authority orientation, which is humility. He's learning to depend upon the grace of God. And in turn, he's learning to deal with his master in a slave-master relationship in grace by doing a tremendous job. See, when he gets done here... And when, when he gets done, I don't want to leave Colossians yet. When he gets done, he's going to get promoted by Potiphar. But, he's, but that promotion by Potiphar shows that he's not just doing an excellent job. He's doing a job better than anybody else. That's why Potiphar gives him the promotion. Now, when we get back to Colossians 3, what we're told is, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Do it with passion. Do it with vigor. Do it enthusiastically. Because you're doing it for the Lord. That's who you're really working for. And this shows that as a believer, we should accept nothing less than the highest quality possible whenever we do anything. Now, we're not going to achieve perfection. Some of us are just never going to have do anything to the quality of somebody else. But we're going to give it 150% and not 75%. Colossians 3.24 
causal participle because you know that from the Lord you will receive what? There we are back to that personal sense of eternal destiny and inheritance stuff again. Because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. You're not doing it for an increased paycheck. You're doing it because your long-term vision is on what God is doing in your spiritual life right now, developing in you authority, orientation, and leadership so that ultimately you will be able to fulfill that role in the millennial kingdom because we serve the Lord Christ. That is our genuine master. So next time we'll come back and go into some more principles on leadership as we see them developed in the life of Joseph while he's a slave to Potiphar with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to see the example of grace orientation and doctrinal orientation in Joseph. Father, we pray that we'd be challenged by the things that we've studied and we might have a passion for you and for your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.